How has the pandemic affected the way that you work, Mark? <laughs> well, it's completely transformed everything. So obviously, like everyone else, I used to go in an office every day and wake up, get dressed, drive, maybe some days take an Uber, go in an office. But obviously, we initially, everyone worked from home. So I participated in that. I remembered spending a lot of, I was living downtown when the pandemic hit. I was spending looking out and seeing empty streets. I decided around fairly early in the pandemic, maybe by mid-April, that I was going to travel. I know a lot of people probably disagreed with that at the time, although no one told me they disagreed, but just society in general. But I thought I wanted to go places. So at first, I went to Idaho and stayed on a lake in Idaho. I went to New Orleans to visit my daughter. So I was traveling when nobody was on planes. I went to Sedona, Arizona and spent some time in Sedona. And then on July 6th, I went to the UK. So you leave, if you leave America on July 6th, you land in the UK on July 7th. It's an overnight flight, red-eye flight. And I got to the UK, had to quarantine for 14 days, went out to Cotswolds, which is like the British countryside. It's really nice. And I spent a month, rented a Airbnb, house on Airbnb, spent a month in the British um, countryside. The UK had just come out of quarantine, so it was like fully reopening, which only lasted three months. After one month in the countryside, I went to London for two months and just tried to live my life. I followed all the rules, wore masks, but tried to live my life. And what was really interesting is it taught me a new way of working in multiple ways. So the first way was just you can work from anywhere. And I already, like at my company, Steelhouse, we already had a, a fairly liberal work policy. Basically, everyone could work from wherever they want, anytime they wanted. But most people still came in the office. Yeah, obviously, since COVID, everyone's been remote 100%. In fact, half the company has left the California where most, most of the team was based. And tell people about Steelhouse and... Sure. What do you do there? Yeah, so Steelhouse is a advertising technology company. We provide a platform that a lot of retail brands use, travel brands, brands that do subscription services they use to do targeted television advertising. So if you're watching a show on streaming television, like if you're watching a show on Bravo, through the Bravo app on your Apple TV or your Roku, Amazon Fire Stick, and their ads during that app, we provide a platform so the, the brands that are advertising there, they can now create those ad campaigns and deliver them all on their own. It's like to them now, it's they can, the person can do an Instagram campaign, paid Instagram campaign using Facebook's ad platform. Now they can do a paid streaming television ad campaign using the Steelhouse platform. It's really a whole new way of doing television advertising, the democratization of television advertising. So instead of having a small number of very large advertisers all using agencies, now it's a larger number of advertisers that now can run television campaigns all on their own and measure the effectiveness of them and, and things like that. So that's what we do. Going back to my how it's changed, so I spent three months in the UK. Then they, actually the UK reopened almost so aggressively that COVID came back really strong. When I got there, it was a few hundred cases of COVID a day. When I left, it was like 25,000 a day. Oh, whoa. Yeah. And France was even more. At, at its peak, I think France had 
600% higher um, COVID infection rate than the U.S. did. And during the summer months where the U.S. hit its summer peak, the U.K. was like 300% higher. So these countries, they were so locked down so hard that when they reopened, people weren't in the practice of mask usage and things like that. So the, U the U.S. had more of a hybrid where people were debating masks, but mo I think especially in large cities, people were wearing masks. So we reopened so much earlier and I guess maybe got more practice at how to balance managing the pandemic with everyone kind of living in life. I certainly learned to manage it because I've, I've traveled. Besides being in the UK, I then left the UK in September and I went to Istanbul and city of 16 million people. The city was fully open, but it was really thorough mask usage everywhere. 100% mask usage wherever you went. The current rules, except if you were sitting down for a meal in a restaurant and you could eat in a restaurant, but you everything, you had to have a mask on all the time. And so the city was hectic. It was, you couldn't, other than everyone wearing masks, you would not know anything had changed. And the, at least the numbers, have seemed really good. So I spent there for a month. I had never been to Turkey before. Had a nice apartment with a panoramic view of Istanbul. And so that was nice. One thing I didn't mention, which is really interesting is, so when I was working in the UK, the rule we set at my company was that you could work anywhere in the world you want, but everyone had to work Los Angeles hours or roughly LA hours. So when I was in LA, the way my workday went is you basically wake up in the morning, get dressed, and you immediately start work, right? And for most people, it's even before they get dressed, they're checking email from you wake up and stuff like that, and then getting ready to go into the office. So it's all wake up, go to work. When I was working in the UK in Istanbul, it was, I didn't start work till four in the afternoon, which was 8 a.m. LA time when I was in the UK. So I would actually work and then immediately go to sleep. So when I actually woke up, I had all day to do what I want. And so I wake up same time, maybe seven or eight, and then go and enjoy the city of London or go and enjoy the British countryside. I actually found that to be a much better work schedule because most of my nights during the week, I'm not going out or anything. I'm tired. I'm exhausted after work. So this way, did a lot of bike riding through London. They were open, so we'd go get nice lunches. And I really actually preferred more of a night-oriented work schedule. And then on the weekends, I could go back then to that. I more go out and grab dinner, grab drinks, do you know whatever you want to do on the weekend. So I found that to be a much better way to work and especially to be able to do it from anywhere in the world was just amazing. So I immediately, after Istanbul, I decided to go to Tulum, Mexico, and I've been pretty much in Tulum ever since. I was in Tulum from early October till now. I did take, do a month. I drove 2,000 miles through Mexico in the month of January. I drove to Mexico City from Tulum. And then on the way back, I drove um, through Oaxaca, which is just incredible part of Mexico. I learned something about Mexico. The terrain is just so gorgeous. I, I know a lot of people have bought campers in the U.S. I'd love to see the Mexican government help people to feel safer about traveling through Mexico because I think it's just, I, I wound up seeing Oaxaca and driving 2,000 miles and just seeing how beautiful the country is and the roads were great. I show people videos 
of some parts of the drive and they're like, wow, these roads, no reason they wouldn't be, but they're like surprised at how well the roads are. And Mexico is not so much these big interstates between Mexican states. They're truly roads through a lot. There's mountainous parts, there's desert parts. It's just, there's oceans. I hope in the years to come that Mexico finds a way to encourage people to explore Mexico, not just fly to Mexico or just go to Tijuana, but to explore Mexico in campers. And, you know, the way I did, I had a Jeep and I was driving through. Definitely a lot of police and the infamous federales who were, you know, that were great. And you stop at checkpoints and they just sometimes ask you where you're headed. And I said, hey, we're headed to Oaxaca and in Spanish, which I'm trying to learn and just <laughs> say, enjoy your drive. So that's been my pandemic, has been enjoying the world, and I think responsibly. I haven't tested positive for COVID or anything. I've tested a fair amount. So that's, and being able to have a work schedule that fits wherever I, I am in the world. So I, I love it. That must be amazing to be so involved within society and what you do, but still be able to live outside of it. Yeah, I'm definitely, it's interesting. A lot of people I know who are in roles that I'll call them stressful or I'm trying to think of the right word, leadership, you know, big leadership roles have, it seems like all of them are in the mountains somewhere. Like it's, I rarely talk to some, because basically the start of every video call, Zoom call is where are you? And because no one knows where anyone is. And it seems like it's always Park City or I haven't heard enough. I would go to Whistler if I was going to stay in the mountains. I really like Whistler, Canada. It's gorgeous there. But Park City is actually beautiful. I've spent a lot of time there. But it seems like everyone who's been in a position to have the freedom to work from where they want and obviously can afford to. Although I've actually saved money traveling in and around the world because I truly moved. I moved out of the place I was living in LA and all the Airbnbs I've rented along the way in hotels, God generally stayed at least a month in each place, have actually been cheap. An Airbnb in Tulum, Mexico is cheaper than, down, than Los Angeles. So I'm living on a beach in Mexico for less money than it costs to live in LA, but I'm on a beach in Mexico, right? Mm. And the same in when I was in Istanbul and even the British countryside was nice and it's actually less money. So it's been this kind, I guess now they call me like a digital nomad, but I like the lifestyle. And tell me about your beginning through eHarmony and your journey along the way. Sure, I grew up in the South Bronx, initially 149th Street for those who know the Bronx, the truly South Bronx, and then eventually 170th Street near the Grand Concourse, which is about nine blocks from Yankee Stadium. Although I was a Mets fan, I wasn't a Yankees fan because I had money to get in the game. So I was like, I'm not gonna, I, I, so I'm like, I'll root for the Mets. I always liked the underdog anyway, the Mets sucked at the time. <laughs> and, but I grew up in pretty, basically poor, really poor, even by New York City standards. But I didn't know I was poor as a kid, and yeah, I just kind of was always smiling. I smiled a lot as a kid. I still smile a lot. And and then I left when I had an opportunity. When I finished high school, I did a semester in college at the University of Wisconsin. Didn't have much money to go to college. Also, a bit lacked patience for that, so I dropped out. Wound up working at a computer store. Wound up teaching myself to code. 
And that led eventually to getting co programming jobs on Wall Street. And then that led to meeting, working for Oracle in the early days, relatively early days of Oracle. And I remember one of the first people I met at Oracle was Mark Benioff. He was a director in desktop products. I was hired as a software engineer, I was promoted to director three months later in the application, Oracle's application division. So I was there right from the start and that was my entry in the Silicon. I didn't even know it was Silicon Valley when I went out to work for it. I thought I was going to San Francisco. I had heard of Silicon Valley, but I didn't realize Silicon Valley at the time. This is early when Silicon Valley wasn't considered San Francisco. It was literally like down, if you know the geography of the Bay Area, it was down the peninsula in the Bay Area, which was like the literal Silicon Valley. So was that early 90s? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I wound up working there and then spent five years at Oracle, eventually started my own company that was venture funded, sold that, then worked at, I was CEO at that company. I was a VP of engineering, a chief technology officer at two other startups in the Bay Area. Then eventually I moved to LA to become chief technology officer eHarmony in the relatively early days of eHarmony. They were, they had started to take off and they were starting to get the ads on TV. And so that was a really fun role. This was pre-Tinder, pre-Bumble, where was the online dating was more profile-based and people were really more embarrassed to be on an online dating site. There was no swiping, but... Are you the first? No, I think Match.com was uh... the first. But Match.com was more like... eHarmony is very marriage-oriented. Mm. It's two-thirds of our site was women which was really unusual for dating sites. I think we were the only dating site that had more women than men. Oh. And, and then I think two thirds of the overall site membership also had been previously married. Mm. So it was very geared towards marriage mm. and, and of serious dating for long-term relationships. So that's the whole thing at eHarmony is you filled out a questionnaire and we truly were matching you based on, we had like a PhD research team that was, studying relationships and doing like basically you we the team would study why relationships failed in order to understand better the things that lead towards a long-term relationship which is what we define as success and then we encapsulated understanding the, each person um, who's on the site through a big questionnaire and then we match mm. based ma match people based on those answers ah. and so it was really neil clark warren who's the person who started eHarmony he was like a clinical psychologist and so it was really eHarmony was started based on his clinical research essentially and then we had a research team and i led the technology team that like turn that into actual software and algorithms oh. and things like that. So you created basically the language of how these two people's surveys would interact with one another? Yeah, the team, I had a whole engineering yeah, 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 team yeah, yeah. and I code, I still code, but I, the, so with the te the research team would come up, would do the analysis and come up with, well, how do, what questions should we ask for the questionnaire? And then we would turn that into software. And you would come to eHarmony site. If people remember the commercials, it was like, get your free personality profile by filling out this questionnaire. So that was the call to action to get, well, the combination of you want to be in a relationship and the free personality profile, it was the excuse, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I'm not going there today. I'm just wanting to get this personality profile, mm -hmm. right? And the site really 
took off. So it was very differentiated from Match.com because we're so marriage oriented. And we wound up running Match.com down from behind, who was the market leader. And we wound up matching their market share. And then years later, then Tinder popularized the swiping. Yeah, where we were, the irony is with the eHarmony was very like personality based. Basically, algorithms are fundamentally simple. People have a lot in common, tend to have longer term relationships. So everyone knows the adage, opposites attract. But what happens is after a few years of being opposite, you, it doesn't work so well anymore. Right. It, 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 things, the things that are opposite tend to grind on the relationship. So fundamentally, Harmony's algorithm, and it's true for any relationship, if you have a lot in common, you're going to tend to have a more successful relationship mm. if you define success as the length of it and happiness. Mm. And so that was fundamentally, and there were certain things that are non-negotiable, like attitude, you know, thoughts on children, things like that, or like if those are not aligned, then there's, then it's a cat, it's basically not going to be a long-term relationship. And so it was fun. At the time, we're spending over $100 million a year on TV advertising. We had a brand, I think we, we had an unaided brand recognition of more than 90%. So meaning that you could just literally walk up to someone on the street and say, name an online dating site, and nine out of 10 people would name eHarmony. Wow. That's, you know, like, like the major brand yeah. na name recognition. And so the work at a company, so the interesting part was there were 300 people working there, 150 people in customer service, and the rest of the company was 150 people. But we had 25 million monthly unique visitors on the website at the time. And we had a brand that nine out of 10 Americans recognized unaided. And so when I would be out, especially in LA, I, at the time I, was, I when I started at eHarmony, I was living in the Bay Area and moved to LA for a number of different reasons. So for the first three months, I was commuting back and forth. So every night I ate out for dinner. And in LA, the first thing anyone asks is what you do for a living. And so I would say, I'm Chief Technology Officer eHarmony, and that would just spark an hour of quest. Because like, it was like, that. I was like a unicorn. Oh wait, you that company eHarmony, that's real? That guy, Neil Clark Warren? He's not a paid actor. He actually exists, and it's based in LA. And the and so it it was it was fun. It was fun to have that reaction, and also, it was the first company I've worked in, probably the only where we really did impact people's lives. At the end of the day, a lot of people go on the site and maybe didn't find the love of your life, but a lot of people did. We were while I was there. When I left, we there we could attribute over 400 marriages per day to eHarmony. And the- eHarmony worldwide too? No, it was oh. just in the US. Part of the reason it was just in the US is because all this research is very cultural. True. So if you wanna match people in Thailand, you have to redo all the research mm. to account for the cultural differences mm. of each region values, and, yeah. and, and things like that, yeah. And a lot of people wanted us to be like the eHarmony for range marriages in India and the eHarmony, like the general, at, at its peak when I was there, that like people were pitching business plans to venture capitalists of I'm going to be the eHarmony of recruiting. And the general thing is I'm going to match people, right? Or the way at the time people were like, I'm going to be the Uber of, which is like gig economy. 
of a particular thing. So that was fun. The fact there were so few people working there was fun because it was just like people were really fascinated. But oh, getting back to what was the most, I remember being in meetings. I was once at a meeting at the New York Times. I wasn't at eHarmony anymore. And I told someone, they were asking where I previously worked. This was before my current company. And I was like, previously been, you know, worked at eHarmony. And the person broke down in tears because he was like, I would have never met my wife if not, there's just no way I would have met my wife outside, you know, without having gone and used eHarmony to find her. And he was literally crying in the meeting and thanking me. And, you know, obviously it was a whole team of people, but that I, I had never worked in a role, a company that so directly in, impacted people's lives. And I didn't quite think of it that way while I was there. I know we used to ha sometimes have site outages and I would have people track me down and call me and being like, I was away. I remember this one woman called me and she was like, I've been away all weekend long and I came home and to log in my eHarmony account and the site is down. And she was really upset because she's, I'm in this. I'm really, you know, looking for, to connect with someone. And that was, that was one of the moments where I realized this is not just a database of people. This is really connecting people's lives. And I think the same is true for Bumble and Tinder and other sites, even if sometimes they're looked on as more casual dating sites. So but it was a lot of fun. And then from there, you went to? From there, I went to a company called Rubicon Project, which is now called Magnite. And so this is what you think. So what, so let me back up. So when I was at eHarmony, we had a whole engineering team for all of the matching technology and the website, but we had a pretty big engineering team for all the marketing technology to have you learn about eHarmony and hopefully use the website and use the service. And so I wound up when I left eHarmony after four years, I started, my goal was to start a marketing technology company because I'd learned all about marketing at eHarmony. We were really good at it. We we're good at matching, we we're good at marketing. And, and left and I did, I, but I knew someone named Frank Adani. He had started a company called the Rubicon Project, which was an ad tech company. In the ad tech market, there are basically sellers and buyers like any other market. And so he created a platform you could, we called a supply side platform, which managed the supply side of the advertising market. And so I joined the company as VP of engineering and I wasn't there. I was only there six months because I already wanted to start do my own startup again, but it was a really big six months. I can't recall the exact numbers, but I think it was something like when I joined, we were serving 50 million ads a day. And when I left, we were serving a billion ads a day. So the company grew like 2000% in six months in terms of volume. And our tagline when we, when they launched was uh, make mad cash, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is geared towards the publishers, all the content, basically make money on your ad space. And so I was there for six months and I started my own company, which is on the demand side of the market, providing a platform for the internet retailers and travel and other industries to be able to buy ad space. But we're all geared towards what we call performance marketing or direct response marketing and now for television and um, so rubicon was great eventually went public and then rebranded last year as called magnite it's doing really well right now 
And so that was a fun transition from working for an ad buyer to working in the ad tech market and then creating my own marketing platform, essentially, at my current company. What do you think the future will be or what's next for tech and innovation? Well, that's a very open-ended question. There's obviously health. I don't even know if they call it health tech, but the there's massive innovation coming in terms of healthcare and life longevity and the really the transition from pharmaceutical drugs to genetic treatments and really essentially using the genome and genetics to health-wise, that's, that's pretty much a 10 out of 10. In and, our lifetime. Oh yeah, for sure. I, there are a lot of predictions right now that human life, this is not necessarily my prediction, this is stuff I read. And so if you think of right now, the average human lifespan right now, I think is 76 or 77 years old, where years ago, maybe a hundred years ago, it was not, it was a lot less than that. It was high forties and maybe very low fifties. And the difference has been the, I'm forgetting the word, but the infectious disease, which is ironic given mm. that we're in the middle of a pandemic. But for the most part, the, we as humans have gotten, you know, tamed infectious disease. And there's always going to be more, but we've tamed it to the point where people don't die for the most, if, if they don't have any pre-existing conditions or things like that, you're not going to die from bronchitis or you know, something like that, right? If it, we've controlled, just use it as a random example. If there are complications, that might be different. But the, we've, the bottom line is we've extended human life because we have way more f pharmaceutical drugs and all these things to deal with infectious disease. So we are left with chronic illness. Basically, we're left with cancer and heart disease and diabetes and you know, other chronic illnesses. Um, by the way, I'm not a doctor or anything. So I'm, re I'm basically talking about things that I've read. And so what you read a lot about now in the reading I do is they say, basically cancer is not the disease. It's a symptom of the actual issue, which is aging itself. And that very few people get cancer young in their life. Very few people get heart disease, right, you know, as a percentage of the population young in their life, that these are symptoms of aging. And if you want, if you cured um, all of them, everything we're doing now, you would only extend human life another four or five years on average. So if you really want to attack the real underlying causes aging itself, and so there's just a lot of work happening and genetically to, to potentially extend human life by, you know, 20, 30 years or more. And by doing those things, you will reduce the number of people with heart disease, with cancer and things like that. That is the real disease and you'll eliminate those symptoms or at least extend life a lot further before you encounter those symptoms. So that I think is guaranteed. In the world of software tech and things like that, the, the iPhone was a, maybe some people call it a seminal event. That sounds like the wrong word. But basically, it ushered in a whole new age of innovation and things like gig economy and never getting lost because you have a map in your pocket at all times and things like that. There's still a lot of innovation to go there. 
you're starting to see Elon Musk involved in the company that's starting to- Neuralink? Yeah, Neuralink, which is maybe literally the link between the two things, we just, those two things actually. And, but it's hard to predict the, the old adage. And I tell this to my company all the time, the easiest way to predict, and this is a, not my quote, it's a quote someone else made a long time ago. The easiest way to predict the future is create it. So the, um, I can predict the future I'm involved in, mm-hmm. which is mainly, it's not extending human life. It's, is more involved in commerce and things like that. But there's clearly a lot more innovation coming. It looks like we are going to put people on Mars. Mm-hmm. So it's starting, you know, like just years. imagine a hundred years from now where that's going to be. And that's just the things that are on the horizon, you know, and some of these things were unimaginable. No one was thinking about putting people on Mars. Yeah. That topic 10 years ago, like realistically, there was no one. And also doing it commercially, not with government, you know, not to all the governments involved in funding um, SpaceX, you know, where it's really a company that's taking the lead on doing it, not a government. I stepped on a machine the other day and pressed down my thumbs and it was able to read my BMI and tell me how much fat was on my body and what was muscle mass. It would be great if I could touch something and it would tell me what vitamins I'm deficient (laughs) in or what I need to eat to achieve optimal health. Yeah. Do you think something like that will be involved in our health system? Yeah, I think that's absolutely necessary. So basically, if you take your car in to get repaired, the car itself, any modern car, keeps a history of its of itself. Of and depending on the amount of computing power in the car and memory and stuff like that, excuse me, that history might just be faults, you know, what went wrong, or it might be entire history of every moment that the car has been driven. The key is that the car can self-diagnose. The car can pinpoint its own problems. It can tell you when it needs an oil change. It can tell you when the tires are low on air. It can tell you all these things. In medicine, the triaging, which is the you know, first step in solving any problem. Some doctors are probably gonna hate me, but I think most doctors, I think most people suck at triaging problems. And I don't think doctors are particularly any better at it than the rest of the population. So this is why people are really often frustrated. I think most people say, I really love and respect my doctor, but at the same time, they'll express frustration that, well, I had this ailment, they couldn't figure it out. So wait, you respect and trust someone that didn't do anything for you? And I'm not trying to be mean towards medicine. What I'm saying is they don't have the tools. People didn't trust their mechanics at one time, right? The car mechanic. But now you just roll the car and the car basically tells the dealership what needs to be done. So uh, for the most part, you have a bit more trusting relation with the dealership because they're like, the car said you need these things because all the software was created. That needs to happen in medicine. Where you are right now, and there are companies like one of our customers called Future, where they keep a baseline of your health, correlate it to how you feel, and then set a plan for how you want to feel in the future. And then hopefully is that baseline and a, a diagno- the measurement and even the software get better and better. Like you won't have to see a doctor. You'll just be home and maybe your phone will tell you what's wrong because that software is on your phone and has a baseline of all mm. of, of the That is, you can't diagnose a real problem without that. Everything else is just an educated guess. Unless you have... Baseline measurement, triage, pinpoint the problem, you're just guessing. And so I think that's a, 
a 10 out of 10 probability. And I personally, I've been very healthy. My mom has been very healthy. I'm not going to wait as the saying goes, but that's the medicine I want. The medicine I want doesn't involve doctors unless it has to be escalated to one. Right. Mm -hmm. And it just, I don't have to really take out my car into a deal until something is needed. I don't think, hopefully that's not too out, out in the future. There's a lot to measure in a human body. A lot of things are not easy to measure and blood work is not something at the moment you're doing at home and the attempt to be able to do it at home didn't work out too well. <laughs> so someone will figure that out. As someone who's so high functioning as you, do you do anything for yourself in terms of physical activity or mental health? How do you stay on top of your game? Not enough. <laughs> so, I do have a therapist, although I haven't seen her much in the last two years. So I just do therapy when I feel the need when I'm dealing with something emotionally like anyone else. Physical, I should be doing more. There's a thing in Tulum called the Jungle Gym. I should be going to that every day, but... Is that just a gym that's outdoors? Yeah, but the weights are made out of wood. And oh. like, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's become, I think it's very Instagram friendly. I can imagine. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so I'm not working out as much as I want to, but the, one of the things that I think is workouts don't have to be long and hard. Mm any, you know, real physical activity. So I try to do the basics, push-ups and things like that. I hate running, but I enjoy bike riding. And so I'm not doing, I did go to Tulum a few years ago where I'd like basically the center of my day, I would go work out, grab lunch. I felt really good. I thought I looked, you know, physically like the way I look. Hopefully your question inspires me to get, <laughs> literally get my ass in gear. So <laughs> but what do you do? What are your philosophies and principles for you to stay on top of your career and run? How many employees do you have? 300? No, about half that. Okay. We're pretty, we're very efficient. Yeah. We should have three. If you ask everyone at the company, they'd probably say we should have three. Because uh, they're working. Yeah. Well. Our revenue per person is really high. It's like, I think almost Google levels and so we're really efficient as a company for the amount of mm. revenue we have, which is pretty significant. But what was the question? Sorry. I, I, what do you do for your mental? What are your philosophies? How do you keep your mind look, sharp? Look, my, my focus, I think of, I literally got asked and we did a kind of fireside chat in my company for the first time, literally last week. And anyone could ask any question and it was fun. And one of the questions is, I think in 10 is a joke, but it was what the, what is the meaning of life? And I said, wait, I think I actually have an answer <laughs> for that question. Or at least what's the meaning for me in my life. And so at the end of the day, for me, I try to live, just achieve three things every day. They're really simple. So great moment, great food, and like I'll call great love. All right. And that's it. And so one of those great food is pretty easy to achieve. As a matter of fact, if you got to eat, why have a bad meal? It's not a, like there's no reason for that. And, and then great moment is all about, you know, whatever. It, actually, that 
fireside chat was a really fun moment. It was a great moment for that day. And then love is love and things like that. So if you get all three of those in a day, mm. then that's, I, no one is going to say, man, I had a great moment. Then we ate and went out and our, my love life is amazing and say, but my day sucked. That's, they're incompatible mm. with each other, right? And that's really it. Everything else I do on every other topic at the most fundamental levels to support those three things. Because even, let's say someone brought up charity as a topic, well, you could say, well, that was a great moment in helping someone, right? Or, or So it's just those three things is how I live my life. I was telling someone about this because the other day, and they were like, all three of those things release endorphins. Ah, <laughs> they, yeah and so that's it for me it's all and i try to keep a really simple philosophy i i don't allow a lot of i won't even say i don't allow a lot of stress i just don't stress and mm-hmm. i do there are moments so you the what they say um not they say so if you're thinking about the future you're ang- you have anxiety and if you're thinking about the past you have regret mm-hmm. so only being present makes you, you feel good you only have the opportunity to feel good without stress if you're present. And so being stressing about the future, stressing about the past, it's not possible basically to feel good mentally, probably physically, since your mind has so much to do with your body and controls your body. There's a lot of that philosophy I have about great food, great moment, love, that has to do with also just being present. And I really, for the most part, don't stress about the future. So I don't stress Mm -hmm. much. And I feel very fortunate that somehow my personality lends itself to not at least outwardly, you know, feel a ton of stress during the day. Have you always had that type of perspective and awareness? Or did you read about it and it changed your outlook? How did you come across that? Yeah, that's just my personality. Yeah, my mom, I grew up, she gave me absolute free. I had no rules at all. And there's a really well-known book. I'm forgetting the name right now. But one of the basic premises of the book is that as children, from the moment you're born free, and then basically your that your whole childhood is about controlling that freedom in a sense. I only say your whole, but there a big element of your childhood is laying down rules, right? And some of those rules have to do with society and some of the family and values and things like that. But the person, and I hope none of this is what I'm saying offends. I'm just recounting with you know what I've read, is that all of those rules it's a bit like treating children like a pet. It's all about setting boundaries and setting rules and things like that. And that as an adult, enlightened adults essentially have to unlearn that. My childhood, my mom put no rules on me whatsoever. And it could have gone disastrously wrong. For the, I don't think it did. Could regulate yourself. Yeah, I, I, in a lot of ways, I feel, my, and I love my mom, and I, in a sense, I almost raised myself. But she gave me a great home and all those things, but she let me figure out things for myself, and, and she just showed me what was possible. Remember, I grew up, we were really poor. She was a housekeeper. 
We didn't have much money. My mom's education was second grade education, not like second year of college. She graduated second grade. That's it. She taught herself to read. And so I'm very self-taught in everything also. So I guess we have similar personalities. And so she just, growing up in New York City, she went out of her way to show me what there was possibility, that there were there was opportunity. So we went to, we I was in the Bronx, but we went to Manhattan a lot, which wasn't, doesn't seem like a big deal, but I had a lot of friends growing up that like never left really the block we were on. Mm. And my mom would take me, I went to Hayden Planetarium a lot. She would take me to museums. She would take me, and my sister wound up dancing ballet. And I went, saw my sister dance at Lincoln Center, all from my mom, who was this woman that grew up with a, you know, really tough life and, but cared for me and my sister and showed us opportunity and then, and left us to figure out the, the rest. And, but it created I didn't. I don't know if that has to do with correlate. My mom's also a very gentle and kind woman. I don't know if that correlated to the stress, but I certainly wasn't getting stress at home, right? I wasn't getting someone telling you what to do. Yeah, like, all of those things, uh-huh. and I it developed a personality. I say to everyone around me now, especially at work, things are never as good as they seem or as bad as they seem. Don't live your life as a roller coaster. You gotta you can have highs and lows and fun nights and fun days and, and stuff like that. But for the most part, if in your worst moments you keep in mind that things always are gonna get better and the best moments you keep in mind that this is not going to necessarily last forever, then when the when it starts, you know, when the, that roller coaster okay, is starting to come back down, you're not in fear of it, you're embracing it. Like, okay, change, it's something new. So I've also always embraced change. And a lot of people get stressed from change and I get exhilarated by change. I love change. Mm-mm. So Same. Yeah. Uh, who says change is the only thing constant? Yeah, very true. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's so important to have an adaptable mind, isn't it? Absolutely, especially like we're living in a world for a while now yeah, I. it's funny because for the last few years, I'm like, man, this world is pretty wild. I can't, what could possibly be crazy of this? And then we get a pandemic dropped on us. And I'm actually slightly fearful of what could get worse than this mm-hmm. now because they're things that are pretty, we, I don't think society wants to face that can get worse than the pandemic. But that being said, you can't stress about them and society, it adapts. We threaten ourselves, and I, I obviously believe in climate. The word, the, I was going to say believe in climate change, but it sounds weird because it's nothing to believe in. It's right. fact. It's, it's just facts. It's just happening. It's not a, a belief or anything like that. But at the same time, I fully, you know, believe the facts of climate change. Let's put it that way. And think that we should try, we should work as a society to help responsibly moderate the, the ways we're affecting the climate at the same time balance that with the t- time it's going to take because we have economies and jobs and things like that are very vested in the industrial world in the way, way it's developed. The, um, I'm forgetting my train of thought. I have a tendency to do that. The, oh, the, so the key thing, so I believe in, the facts around climate change, 
but I also think that the earth is fine. The earth is not going anywhere. It's people on earth that are threatened by, by like, like this, this idea that we don't want to destroy the earth. We're not going to destroy the earth. We might destroy our own ability to live on earth. But, and I know that seems like a subtle distinction and maybe, well, what's the difference? For me, the difference is it's easy to argue that human life doesn't threaten earth. It's hard to argue that human life doesn't threaten human life on earth. So climate change is not about saving the planet. It's about, or trying to manage climate change. It's not about saving the planet. It's about saving ourselves. And the, because we saw that in the Gulf oil spill, like we, they probably don't want me to repeat their name. British Petroleum dumped a phenomenal amount, unfathomable amount of oil into the, the Gulf of Mexico and it just shook it off like a bad habit. Like it, it, I know there's, I'm sure there's permanent damage in some way, but it will come back. Chernobyl, it's becoming a forest. The earth is fine. Our ability to live in Chernobyl is what's been permanently damaged. And in theory, our ability to live on Earth it, it eventually could be permanently damaged. I, I personally think that debate should be framed more in terms of human life and less in terms of life of Earth itself. Mm, I think that would inspire people to take more action as well. Yeah. If the pivot was human. It's more human because that's the only thing that's threatened. Mm. Earth is going to keep hurdling. Some I, the seasons I find fascinating because they really, when you feel the seasons change, it really comes home that we're living on a rock hurtling through space around a sun that is so hot that if I just cross the street, I feel warmer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I stand in shade versus in the sun, how hot a ball of energy is that just crossing the street, I can feel the temperature difference and it's, you know, that far away. And so all of this is happening and that ain't stopping. Only our existence in that is, is the thing that could stop. And that's worthy to talk about. I also think it balances the debate in terms of if we want to do things to make sure we don't damage the thing that could be destroyed, which is human life, we have to balance it with the lives of the people who, have, who are vested in the the way things are now, the oil workers, and we have to put real effort into finding ways to balance the future and the the present. Both sides of that equation were human. If you try to pit the lives of oil workers against the life of a rock hurtling in space, that's going to create a big vicious debate. Mm -hmm. But if it's but if both if it's life on both sides of that debate and everyone is affected, then I think that you can have a more reasonable discussion about it. Do you think it will become a level of discussion when someone can make money off of it? If someone can profit? Well, Elon Musk this year became the richest man on oh, earth. That's true. Yes, yes. Selling electric cars, although so the and electric cars are not the I'm not sure electric cars are the the future of clean transportation right because a lot of people would argue that hydrogen is cleaner obviously nuclear power is even cleaner then because where did the what was done to produce the electricity for that car it's definitely way more 
I don't want to get, I don't want to try and do energy science, but anyway, it's definitely a huge starting point and it's the, it's a step. It's a big step. The, and he's been able to make it work. And although it's still a small part of the auto, automobile market, but it's leading the way in terms of new ways of looking at trans, you know, of personal transportation more than leading the way. I mean, it's a status symbol for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I care about the environment. So I drive. Yeah. Or I live in Silicon Valley and I make a fuck ton of money. Yeah. Or make a boatload of money, but I'm going to pretend I don't because maybe someone doesn't know how much a Tesla costs compared to what a Ferrari costs or something like that. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> a low-end Ferrari is more expensive. It's not as much more expensive than most people think. That's a high-end Tesla. Uh -huh. High-end <laughs> Tesla is what, 120 at least, yeah. and a low-end Ferrari is like 210, probably, mm. something like that. It's not, but if you don't like, you know, I'm not trying to argue people should drive Ferraris. Right, my right. Point. My point is that it, if you want to drive something expensive but have it not seem ostentatious, the Tesla, I think, is an option a lot of people have chosen. And it's green. Yes. <laughs> and it's forcing a lot of other car companies to make a green option. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one of the most entertaining Super Bowl commercials this year was Will Farrell. Oh, I didn't see it. Oh, it's funny. Was he it? was he I think the premise of the commercial was that Finland was had the highest per capita electric car usage and so General Motors like we're going to go Finland can't beat the US. We're going to go beat Finland. It was really it was act, it was really funny. Will Farrell's really funny. So oh, yeah. the commercial it we had a few different it had three really well-known comedians in it and the whole commercial was hilarious. Oh, who yeah. else is in it? Keenan Keenan oh. from SNL uh -huh. and the the comedic actress that was from the Rich Asian movie. Oh, Aquafina? No, oh, the, the the big one from 2 years ago, like the Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asians. Remember the Asian girl in Crazy Rich Asians? Which that's Asian a comedian. Girl, though? That, her name's Aquafina. Oh, that's Aquafina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know her name was Aquafina. Oh, yeah. the quirky, yeah, loud. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. All three of them were in the commercial. Uh, yeah, so it's fine. Somehow I didn't know her name was Aquafina. Yeah, she's a rapper. That's yeah. how she started. That's she's hilarious, yeah. I think her real name might be Nora. Yeah, okay. Oh, so that's the stage name? Aquafina? Isn't it? Well, who's the guy that got famous under two names? I am so bad with names when I'm trying to remember names. So it sounds like I don't know what's going on. Wait, who is he? Um, what do you do? He's a rapper, too, that turned into an actor? The, the one that guy? did the song America. He sang America. The, the He did a music video with no shirt on. Oh. and. None of this is ringing a bell. Uh -uh. Someone listen to this, they're going to be like, <laughs> this is like name that tune. Uh -huh. But the name that tune by the description <laughs> of, the sh no, of the video. Oh my God. I'm look it up, look it up, look it up they, on your phone. Well, while we're talking, where is my phone? It's right behind you. Oh, okay. Phones everywhere. I bet you if I Google, this is, I'm not a big fan of Google the company, but the Freaking search engine is good. I mm -hmm. bet you I put in, let's see what we're gonna search for. This is gonna be a good And what's the alternative? Rapper who got famous under two names. <laughs> I'm not even sure he's considered a rapper. I think more a singer, but let's see what it says. The real name, nope, this is not working. It's not giving me. You might have to put Song America to make it more. Yeah, I was hoping that it could be really ambiguous and it would still get it. Song America. And I think it's with a K rather than a C. Actor. It's actually an actor more than a so. And it says, look, we're wasting time now. It's okay. The, okay, I think 
this is oh childish gambino oh, what's his other name America. right right what's his other name uh donald glover yeah but wait, he got famous under both names at the same he time. Did. And people didn't know it was the yeah, same person. Yeah. Like, it's, that's pretty badass. You know, anyone can get famous, but can they get famous twice? Yeah. <laughs> and no one even knows. He so. is so talented. Yeah. He is. Absolutely. And so that was a good trivia question right there. I wonder how many people we should try that with friends. That's you ever play char charades? Now they do it with the. I thongs. love it. I love it so much. <laughs> I have the most embarrassing. You know you can record it too when someone's acting it out. Oh they really? Have an option oh to right. Oh my god, that's funny. <laughs> what's your embarrassing story? I was at what's the ho hotel Irwin on the rooftop one day, playing, you know, on charades? the phone, uh -huh. and the word was anal. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to guess it or did yeah, you, you had to guess it? it. Oh. So they're doing everything to guess oh, it, no. and it's it's no it's during the day, music's going, it's loud, and finally I get it. And I start screaming out Adel, <laughs> and they stop the music. Oh, <laughs> and I'm going Adel, <laughs> just as the music stops. <laughs> Top, I, I would put that. I'm trying to, I don't, I try not to feel embarrassment as a feeling, <laughs> but it's, so it's hard to risk that, Greg. It can't be less than top five embarrassing moments of my life. That's amazing. <laughs> Everyone turn over and look Oh, yeah, they just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> screaming anal. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> oh, man. That was pretty funny. I just. <laughs> I literally can feel my body temperature just went up. I'm like cooking inside. <laughs> that was funny. Oh my goodness. I would have died if I was there. <laughs> it's hilarious. Oi. Okay, what were we talking about before Donald Glover? Um, we were talking about Amer the Earth. and Oh, yes, yes. I think we covered that, though. Yeah. But I think we got that. Some The, like, work, focus on yourself. Earth's fine. Yes, You're at yes. risk. Oh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about AI right. and your thoughts. Because, so here are my thoughts regarding AI in a specific department of human relationship. A part of me is down for it because I feel like a lot of people will, for the first time in their lives, be able to experience love. Wow. So that aspect, I'm down. The aspect that scares me is the dependence of something that you can control to not give you the capacity to change or evolve because you're programming something to suit exactly what you want and yeah. your needs. So the AI you're talking about is like you date, you can date an AI. Yeah. Cause that's coming. Yeah. I think I agree. It's coming. I think we're further away than, Oh, you think th so? Then I don't think we're far away, but well, right now, a lot of what's called AI and, I'm sure some people will tell me I'm wrong. I think is 
overstated. In other words, self-driving cars mm -hmm. are clearly called AI, except there have been autopilots in planes for decades. So were they autopilots AI or were they just autopilots, mm. right? And the only argument that I think could be made there is a distinction is the complexity. So what, so as things get more complex, it's artificial intelligence. I don't think that all makes sense. So I think a lot of what's called, so you have the vision of AI you're talking about is, you know, synthetic knowledge and yeah. intelli or intelligence, yeah. true AI. Programmed intelligence. Right. Getting in my car and then having tons of sensors and keeping the car between the lines with a detailed map of Earth, that's, in my mind, that's a complex problem. Mm. Just like flying and landing a plane is a complex problem, which plane, which the highest end planes can land themselves. But I think it's overstating it to call that AI on the level that people are thinking. Putting all that aside, that I think AI is often treated as a marketing term rather than, rea than reality. I think the topic you brought up is it's, there, let me take the conversation a different direction okay. when we come there. So there's a thing called, that I'm a big fan of, law of unintended consequences. So that you can't, in the, as society changes, things change, it's hard to predict what the effect of that change can be, even when the effect was entirely predictable. Like the iPhone. No, I think even simpler than that. I'll give you an example. Years ago, the you know, kind of industrial farmers decided to put growth hormones in the food supply in the form of, we're going to do growth hormones on chickens and, and cows and things like that, and to make them larger and we make more money. Except the law of unintended consequences is that you're going to start feeding society growth hormones, yeah. which is going to make people yeah. bigger also, which is, was a pretty predictable result of that. And that's a really easy to predict results. Often law of unintended consequences is entirely unpredictable. Right. Yeah. That's two plus two equals four. Right. Exactly. And so with AI, the thing about something as truly revolutionary as AI is that the law of unintended consequences is potentially going to be vicious mm, and scary. yeah. And the probably not like Skynet, the, which is you know, terminate the was the if you're a Terminator fan, Skynet was when the computers became self-aware and immediately determined that the biggest threat to human life was human life. <laughs> so they took over, right? Exactly. The and there's probably a lot of truth in that too, although it's very dystopian. But I honestly don't have an answer for the question. I see. I think there are a lot of the world seemed to me, my observation is the world's becoming more emotional. Maybe that's because of the amplification. I'm not a, as um, a hater on social media like most people are, right? The, there were people that would hate on printing presses and everyone always hates new technology, some percentage of population. But I do think that a constant stream of emotional content is seems to be making society as a whole more amped up and more you used to have a news feed. Now you have an emotion feed, you have a meme feed and it's all funny and it's all everything, but it's also a daily emotional feed. And it seems to be having an unintended consequence of making the society 
more emotional, mm. bouncing between more extremes. And, and I think in terms of social media, that's what a lot of what people are responding to in terms of their, if they think social media is bad, that's the innate bad is something feels more extreme and that's it. Now going all the way back to the AI, for all we know, if you get the concept, the AI, and it leads towards the entertainment support, you know, occupy your mind type stuff. I want to be entertained. I want to be loved. I want to think, and it's done without just using this example, a, an emotion feed being injected into you every day for hours on day. If you're very active on social media, could have a lot of positive effects. They, I'm, I'm making this up. I'm just thinking through your question off the top of my head. So I'm not as afraid of it as it sounds. But I don't also don't think it's two years away. I think we're, I think we're, it will know it's here. It, like an iPhone, we'll know it's here when it's here. I think people so use iPhone, they may forget, especially if you never, for someone who's never even seen a phone before an iPhone, how massive a leap the iPhone was versus like your, what was it? The Nokia? Yeah. I mean, it was, it's funny when you watch movies, they're like pre iPhone, post iPhone, like, <laughs> like it's the current generations, probably when black and white films went color. Okay. It's like they're, you watch a film that doesn't have iPhone in it. Mm -hmm. It like feels like a period film from another set, literally from, a, I guess the, the, the iPhone's only, I bought an iPhone in late to the first iPhone, late 2008. I remember stand, I used it after they announced it to do encourage people. I was still Eddie Harmony and wanted people to rec on the team to recommend folks for recruiting, for hiring. And I said, top three. If you do referrals, top three, get an iPhone. I will personally wait online to go get it. Mm. So I got online that first day, get three iPhones for other people. I got oh. one for myself too. So the, so I remember that first iPhone that was late to, uh, unless I'm pretty sure it was late 2008. Was that your first? Or was it late product? 2007? No, I got my first Apple product when they announced the, that might've been my first cause around the same time they announced the Intel chip on Macs. And the moment they announced it, my father knows like the Steve Jobs on the same day. The I thought when Mac switched an Intel chip, the Mac would take off. And I bought Apple stock and I bought a Mac. Mm. <laughs> Were you around Silicon Valley still at that time when Apple was on its rise? No, I was living in LA. Oh, got it. Yeah. But I was in Silicon Valley like the first generation when I. I had the opportunity to meet Steve Jobs when he was doing Next Computer. Oh, wow. I was yeah. at Oracle at the time and I had a Next Computer. We had a few of them and I got one. He talks about Oracle in his book. Yeah, I actually was in a meeting with Steve Jobs. I think it was Larry Ellison, Mark Benioff, just some of the names I remember and a few other people. And Steve literally went to the, I had never met him before. He went to the whiteboard and started talking about interpersonal computing. and what next was going to do and things like that. That was pretty cool. And he, he was Steve Jobs. Yeah. It wasn't like up and coming. It was Steve Jobs. 
And that was pretty amazing. And then I wound up getting a next computer and got to code on a next computer. Oh. I wish I could. I have so many things I wish I kept. That was, oh, I was just about to ask you if you still had it. No, I don't have my original iPhone. I just, I'm not, I'm not a, I don't, um, what do you call it? Pack Hold rat? Yeah, yeah, no. That's I'm, a great trait to have. I though. used to live in a loft. And so you can't like keep stuff in a loft. Yeah. If anything, you have to constantly be throwing away right. stuff. There's no storage. Yeah, yeah. I don't have that original that next computer i wish i had kept it mm. in storage ironically wait so from la then you moved to new york and then you moved back to la no i grew up in new york moved to the bay i've lived in four cities in my life new york bay area i actually lived on the peninsula berkeley california but bay area london and la oh so you never actually lived in new york as an adult i thought you did early young adult oh yeah. Yeah. okay okay not as a, I left New York, yeah, as a young adult, but I never lived there like past my, growing up in the Bronx, I wanted to, I wanted some, that's why I went to University of Wisconsin. I wanted to get out of New York. Uh -huh. Later years, I appreciated New York on a lot more. And before the pandemic, I would go to New York in a peak about 20 times a year. Oh. Yeah, almost every three weeks. Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought you lived there too. No. Oh. Is tech male dominated or is it pretty democratic in terms of male, female? <laughs> That's a loaded topic. Because <laughs> the... I always hear, I'm an outsider. I always hear that it's male dominated. Definitely it, engineering in tech is male dominated. Although I think that's changing a lot. And it really just comes down to... They, I, I have never experienced that kind of bias in tech. Not, well, let me put it this way. I've definitely not experienced that on a, like in engineering. We're not going to hire a female engineer or something like that. that, that <clears throat> excuse me. I think at, at funding, there probably have been, you know, biases there and that reflect most of venture capitalists were male and their perception of successful entrepreneurs were male. And these are like subconscious biases. Uh, I'm not sure there are people like a woman can't succeed as an entrepreneur or a woman can't succeed a, you know, as a software engineer and where those biases might have existed. The numbers speak for themselves, right? More women go to college than men. I think increasingly you see women choosing careers in software engineering, the roles that were very male dominated. In other roles like marketing, I think you could actually say it's quite the opposite, that there are female dominated roles in tech and in other companies. And so you know, the biases that might have existed, I think, are fading as the choices of people you know one thing is you can these a lot of these issues can be changed in a single generation and when i say generation generation life a generation of college students like the, one class of college students can basically change if there were male dominated bias in software engineering then we need a female i'm not a big fan of fighting bias with bias but the a female dominated class of software engineers would change that. And the certainly a, a series of dominated uh, classes would. 
So that's, I don't think I'm being naive in that. I, like in the time I've been in Silicon Valley, I saw a community of engineers, so we go more to racial bias, that were very, there were a lot of engineers and people from India. There were a lot of engineers in, in, in other roles from parts of Asia. And so the, and so the idea that Silicon Valley is, you know, biased against certain racial groups and age groups, I personally don't feel like I've seen that or else why would there be so, why would the president of Google be from India, have been, I believe he was born in India and grew up there for at least, you know, early part, part his childhood and so forth. So I haven't, I, I, I think these things are inconsistent with the idea that there's racial bias. Now what there is, is I think, I think there's societal biases through opportunity. Like in other words, I don't claim to be an expert on these topics, but I believe the country of India invested or somehow within the country of India, they invested in engineering schools and the best schools had the best engineering programs and were the, and that created waves of talented engineers who, when those engineers came to Silicon Valley looking for jobs, they were hired. So if there, if there are biases built into the overall system, they are built in, they start with where are the candidates coming from? And I was in everyone, I think the app clubhouse has become pretty, is becoming well known. So I've been a relatively early user of clubhouse. It's not my favorite app, but the, I've been using it. And there's a term for this concept of, of, you know, waves of students or candidates making it in the companies called pipelining. And it can be looked at as negative or it can be looked at as positive. So the negative is, well, the solution to this problem is to get new students that have the skills, that are aware of the, the types of opportunities that are available. Honestly, that's what my mom did. She showed me the opportunities that are available, but I then had to make the right choices. One of the things that's really hard for any people, anyone between the age of 15 and 21 to do is to make good choices. As I think to do th more charitable work, I'm kind of going all over the place here. Okay. The charitable topic I'm most interested in is the decision-making in those critical years. Mm. The, I, I have a friend that runs, I, I don't know if he's running the charity, but he's involved in a charity. It's a softball league and other things geared towards high school students in their kind of junior and senior years. And the, I, my company participates in it and we participate in, we're very proudly have won the softball tournament with some good teams. We've won a few years in a row. And when I talk to the students, I give them, I ask them, I just ask them, so what are you planning to do after high school and a lot make reference to working in the healthcare industry, which is great. And the advice I give them is whatever you do, be the best at it. Like 
and if, because if you are the best at it, you get to set your own rules. And even in a industry with all the structure and rules of the healthcare industry, if you're the best, you will, you know, get to set some of your rules. You'll get to work in an environment where you feel more freedom. You'll get to work at the best hospitals or the best healthcare facilities and things like that. And so that's the number one advice. But overall, I feel like their choices seem very narrow. They're not being really shown what all the choices are. They're not being told how you get there and they're not being helped in making good decisions. And I don't think that's the response. I think that's hard for parents. I think that's hard for the schools dealing with in the county, in a place like Los Angeles, how many students are they dealing with? And ultimately every individual has to take responsibility for their own life at any age, not just as adults, even at 16, 17, you have to make choices. But the, the basic point is whatever, let's go back to the beginning, whatever biases they are, there are two ways to address them, right? You can eliminate them going forward and you can correct for them from the past. The eliminating them going forward takes one college class to start to correct. And these days, not even the full four years, right? We're moving, seem to be moving more towards two years of college education. So people, so students are not, don't leave college with so much debt, right? So a series of classes where the students were being helped and guided, and I'm not talking like high school counselors. I don't actually don't know what the exact solution is, but I know if I help a 16 or 17 or 18 year old make a better choice, that choice will affect generations. This was a thing back at eHarmony that Neil used to say. He used to say, if we help create a better marriage, if you believe in marriage, let's just call it a better relationship if you don't care about marriage, but you believe in relationships. If we create a better relationship, we don't just benefit the two people in a relationship, we benefit generations of people. Their kids will see a happy you know, parents and relationship, which will lead them to likely have happier relationships. And so when you get back to the topic we're talking about now with students, if we can help 16 or 17, 18, you all make better choices. We don't just help them, we help generations of their kids, you know, to make better choices and to hopefully grow up in a household where the person is happier about their work. We could go on a whole topic about work and relation, you know, the concept of relationship work, which is a big topic for me. But so I think that's really important. So going all the way back, are there bias? Yeah, there have been biases. Can we correct those biases? The easiest way to correct them is eliminate them. And the easiest way to eliminate them is better choices right now. And there's absolute proof of that because that was done with the community of, in, of engineers and other, other roles from India. It was done for Asia. Was done, and for some reason, it hasn't been done enough here in America. People in the United States make choices at critical moments when those choices are needed. And so if there's a charity I'm interested in creating, it's to address that topic. And I think that will correct the biases. And I, I don't know if saying that will eventually give me a tactful believing in pipelining, because I think if my personal opinion, 
and prove me wrong. I'm, I don't mind being pr proven wrong, although I have a friend that has a shirt that says, I could agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. Uh. <laughs> so, I love that shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> proving is not going to be just beating me down. It's going to be an actual serious, like, shared knowledge and good debate and stuff like that. But I think what you're saying is very important on a different level, which is people change and evolve and if they have a good argument and give you some more knowledge that you're not aware of, your mind will change. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love change. So it's easy to convince. That's a surprising thing. I think I'm sometimes thought to be like not that willing to change, but actually I don't believe in long-term planning because the quality information to make a decision is best right before the decision. I'm not going to make a decision. Imagine trying to drive across America and you plan it out precisely. Like, how? what's the likelihood that plan is going to play out? Zero. It's literally zero. There's 100 probability that you will have a plan that works 0% as planned, right? So, try to, so I like to make decisions right before the decisions needed. It doesn't mean I don't plan at least have the information needed. Like I wouldn't just jump in my car and go across America and not even think for a minute, well, where should I stop or anything like that. But I can easily be, I wouldn't even say proven wrong, adapt. I adapt to what I currently know. And I think it's one of the most underrated skills in business because advanced planning is praised as valuable and on the fly decisioning is looked down upon almost. I think a hybrid of that should be, it's what's really needed with more emphasis on real-time decision-making. Mm. Yeah, why have real-time data if you're not gonna do real-time decision-making, so. And there's so many variables that you can't control. Yeah, absolutely, well. so and why they change. Would you? Yeah. yeah, and they change constantly. The original question, I keep trying to refer to the original question. I don't think there's much at this point of an explicit bias and if there was the person's just going to get beaten down by the me too movement as they should and or maybe not me too but just like it's unacceptable to be have a bias against female engineers or i should say entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs based on anything so i think hopefully those those biases are have faded or continuing to very rapidly fade all right, so be the best at what you're planning on doing to the youth and... Well, you can, look, being a video game player is probably not the best career choice, but it pays well if you're really good at it. So that's true for every career. So going back to the charity that I'm involved in, and I want to say the name of the person who runs it, but I'm afraid I'm going to butcher his name. So I'm a little, it's... Don't spell it instead. <laughs> I, it's, he's very active on Instagram. I actually talked to him the other day, so now I'm fairly embarrassed to even be saying that. But I just want to get the spelling of his name right. It's, it's either Markel or Marquez, and I'm forgetting if it... And he's an amazing guy. Like, I, I really admire him. And I was just looking through my phone because we were on a phone call just the other day. But apparently I make a lot of phone calls. <laughs> Anyway, he's done an amazing job with it. But going back to the, and forgive me if, if he hears this, I would frame the, to try and convince the students, and I don't think, I actually, I can make reference to another chart that's really interesting. So one question that I would ask, 
I said, and I would use a number. I'm going to give you the question in a second, but I use a number that's not too large. So people, so anyone I'm asking a question to is only like 16 years old can believe it. So I said, if I told you that if you spent another um, 48 months, if you spent 48 months in school, I can guarantee you, you would make $75,000 a year, at least for the rest of your life. Would you make that choice? And most of 75,000 sounds a lot while not being out of reach. I actually think the numbers more and, and most of the students, yeah, I would absolutely do that. And that's all that's being asked and increasingly maybe just 24 months. And by investing in a career and making the right choices now, it would guarantee you the income that an income leads to lifestyle and things. And it's actually a lot more than I'm even quoting. So I'm trying to make getting out of high school and potentially really focusing on career seem like something doesn't take a lot of time investment, but has a, and you can say another way. I could say, if I could guarantee you, you would make, let's raise the number to $100,000 a year. State it differently, because the way you phrase things really affects, obviously, how people perceive them. I guarantee you, if you spend another 24 months in school, after high school, 24 months in college, you would make a million dollars in the next 10 years. Would you make that choice? Most people would say, fuck yeah, right? Well, that's the choice, right? 10 years, 100K a year, or first few years at 75K going to 125. That's the choice. It's a pretty simple choice. And it's one that is virtually guaranteed. It's an example of, that's not a magic bullet for high school students making better choices as they leave high school, but they obviously need more information, better framing of what's at stake, more diminishing of the investment, more enlarging realistically. Mm. It's a million dollars on the line Mm. over the next 10 years, a million. You wouldn't make that choice? And then even more after that. Right, and even more after that. For a million dollars, you wouldn't make that choice? Why not? You know? And so I think in that, I had someone who... I've had not a lot, but a few long-term relationships. My ex-wife, and I have two daughters, and obviously they're amazing. And the they're involved in tech also, which is... At first, I didn't know what to think about that, but it's been really fun. I had a girlfriend, and she had a PhD, worked for a charity called Mothers to Mothers. And Mothers to Mothers was based in South Africa. It might have legally been based in the U.S., but it was worked out of South Africa and then expanded throughout Africa. And what they did is they helped women who had HIV prevent the transmission of HIV from the mother to the child. So it turned out the problem there that wound up learning, and if people know about HIV and the drugs associated with managing that, there's no issue in terms of the drugs, the pharmaceutical drugs to prevent the transmission of HIV from mother to child. That actually is no problem. The big problem was getting mothers to take it. And this was a cultural issue in terms of getting mothers to take it that they and I honestly can't recall exactly what the cultural issues, but it was, so this doctor goes to South Africa and he's got money to get the mothers there who have HIV and are pregnant 
to take, and they have to come back multiple times to take this medication that, so she, the mother doesn't transfer HIV to her unborn child, and, you know, obviously when the child was born. And he couldn't get mothers to take the drug. So the first, so he wound up figuring out the mothers that did take those drugs and it worked successfully, that he hired the mothers to convince other mothers. Mm. So thus the charity is called Mothers to Mothers. Uh. And it did two things. It gave the mothers jobs and it helped slow the spread of HIV and obviously the huge impact on the family and the child. So the issue wasn't the technology, the issue, or even the message. It was how the yeah. message was delivered and by whom. Yeah. And I think so when we go back to this topic of helping uh-huh. high school students make good choices, I don't think I can right. help them make good choices. I don't necessarily think that just saying, hey, I, you know, I've been successful. I grew up in the Bronx. I do have some street cred. Dropped out of college, which is not a message I want to deliver. But, you know, I basically worked really hard to try to become the best at what I do. It seems like that would inspire, but that's not enough. Like inspiring, if you have a group of 100 inspiring three, that's not enough. We need to make it all 100. And I, I think the mothers to mother example is, is a model that I'm very interested in if and when I get involved in pursuing this topic, which I get asked a lot, is there a charitable topic I'm interested in? And this is the, I don't really consider it charity. It's just the topic I'm most interested mm. in. Cause I don't think it's a charity that just helps someone make a better choice. I think it's just um, a responsibility actually mm. that that's so it's the path I'm headed down on that topic and that hopefully affects the topic of bias, you know, subconscious. I think that the topic of conscious bias is being addressed through society. Subconscious bias is harder. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I feel a social responsibility for this in terms of the foundation of the podcast, which is to expand minds. Yeah. It doesn't really feel like a choice to me. I feel like I'm being told to do it internally. Yeah. If you're doing, which I, I've no, we met only a year ago, right? Something like that. Yeah. yeah not yeah. too long. Yeah. yeah. It's been, and like every minute we've spent, this is actually the first time we're sitting down just you and me. I think we've never had a conversation with just you and me in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's been, it's been some great, I have to cook now because I think this may be the first time I didn't cook. It's always been multiple and I do some cooking. I haven't done much cooking while I've been You're on the road. I'm on the road. Yeah. I've been eating a lot of good food. Just haven't cooked any of it or much of it, but it's been great. Just, it's always fun to talk basically. It's always been fun for, for us to talk and drink and eat and there's it, it goes back to great moments like maybe i should add great comment i put great conversation a great moment category but maybe i should throw that as four things yeah great moment great food great love great conversation yeah you really do live that way <laughs> from the moment i met you oh yeah that's yeah, it yeah. that's it wake up in the morning like jason in a horror movie just boop i'm up uh-huh. <laughs> lean up <laughs> And and it's immediately I'm on those topics. Although I tend to skip breakfast and go for lunch, because I feel like lunch tastes a lot better. That's my great food uh, topic. because you're hungry. Yeah, just the breakfast, man. Breakfast in Mexico is really good. 
in Europe, like Europe doesn't know how to do breakfast. Uh-huh. They just Americans know how to do breakfast, but Mexicans know how to do it with flavor. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> so, the huevos ranchos. Yeah, I think Thailand does good breakfast too. I've been to Thailand once for a few weeks, and the, I, I always look. It was the only time I look forward to breakfast outside of uh, Mexico. How is breakfast in Thailand different from lunch in Thailand? They're very similar. Yeah, Maybe right? that's why I liked it. <laughs> it was like, I get to eat lunch at 8 a.m.? This is amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, they, it, it is like that. A lot of flight. I mean, I t- whenever I travel, I'll give everyone a travel tip. It's a really mm. simple one. Take a cooking class wherever Ooh. you go, especially if it's a group. Because you get, you find, you just like Yelp a cooking class or go on Facebook and search for cooking classes wherever you are. And let's say it's six friends traveling together. It could be just two. I've done it with just me and the person I was with. And I remember doing cooking class with the person I was with, my girlfriend, who I was with a long time. We're still really good friends, if not the best of friends now. And we took a cooking class in Thailand. It was just absolutely amazing. We, and it started with us going to like the local market and, yeah, and stuff like that. And, but that is, if let's say, I see a lot of people come to like Tulum where I've been and they come in groups of six or eight. And if you take a cooking class, it's just a great, everyone's cooking together and eating and drinking. It's great, great evening. It, it should be, I think it should be, generally I found cooking classes for dinner. I feel like it's it should be a guarantee one night out of every trip, wherever you go in the world. So that's my travel tip of the evening of the day. I love it. Yeah, I'm gonna as a gift, and I normally give it to you as a surprise. I probably shouldn't have said yeah. that, <laughs> but I'm gonna just get you a little kit, like a little tiny, a little tripod about that high, and they they have another model. That this one is for like putting instruments in it and stuff oh, like that. Yeah. But they have these mics are really, really good and they'll pick the quality of sound will be insane. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. My first real podcast I'm, kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Mark. I love the way you think. I love the way that you run your company and I love the way you articulate yourself. (laughs) I appreciate you sharing on the podcast. Thank you. I always enjoy talking. So thanks for, I'm flattered you asked, hopefully not waste some of your time. Not at all. (laughs) Risk wasting some of your time. (laughs) That was Uh, fun. All right. Thanks. Peace. Peace out.